Hello, and thank you for joining us on Technical Roundup. We have another episode as part of our kind of podcasty interview to be defined type of series. We are speaking today to Eric Wall, who's kindly guaranteed, guaranteed, gosh, offered his time, not sure about guarantees, uh, offered his time to talk to us on a broad range of topics. We look forward to picking his mind. Before we get started, of course, a quick thank you to Blockfolio, the sponsor of Technical Roundup. Make sure to visit blockfolio.com or blockfolio.trade for further information. So joining me, of course, is Donald and then Eric himself. Gentlemen, how's everyone doing? Yeah, hey guys, thanks for having me on. Um, it's been uh, it's been quite interesting. I mean, I think that we have circled each other for a long time on Twitter <laughs> and it didn't start out that nicely in the beginning, which sort of clashed immediately. And then uh, all, each of us have persisted in the space. I think we've circled around each other for about four years now and we've come to learn that uh, uh, all of us here on this podcast has a genuine interest in the uh, deeper topics in the space and i think that once we um just observed each other for a long enough time we understood that there is no reason to dislike each other so we sort of have apologized to each other and now we're we're friends so that's nice it nice wouldn't be, be twitter without a fight isn't that right donald yeah <laughs> i mean over four years um a lot of stuff happens right um and i'm more than happy to have like have bygones be bygones yeah for sure i very <laughs> much agree uh, eric is the chief investment officer at arcane assets if his linkedin is to be believed which of course i do um i'm sure you've been on a few of these in fact i know you have because i've listened to some of them eric and you know there's always the introductory section to these like who are you how did you get into bitcoin etc as our audience will be acutely aware we like to almost sidestep that to some extent or approach it from a slightly different angle so when I first heard of you, or when, it, when my first memory, if you will, uh, on Twitter is completely nuking with via long threads uh, the how certain altcoins were built up, right? Whether it was Neo, Iota, uh, I'm sure there are some others come to mind. Those kind of legendary and at that point viral threads uh, is really where my kind of first impulse association with Eric Wall comes from. Do you want to give us some? Uh, Maybe background, or does does that bring back any memories? <laughs> yeah, and I'm 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 glad that there are some people who don't just know me as the rainbow guy, and uh, <laughs> that there are some people that remembers my history. Uh, I was um, I was uh, actually not uh, that visible in the cryptocurrency community at all until I wrote those threads. That's sort of when I actually when I. Uh, logged on to Twitter and created a medium page for the first time was when I was doing my due diligence on uh, the IOTA project and the Eternity project. And I had a lot to say about both those projects and I didn't see that there was any information. The stuff that I had read, the stuff that I had, had discovered, I didn't see that there were any of that information that the public was aware, uh, aware about. So I, um, you know, I, it was it was completely a frustration on my end that the discussions that I saw online weren't going in the direction that I thought they should be going. So I took it upon myself. Well, okay, if nobody else is talking about this, then I gotta, uh, I got to get this message out. And one of those things was that the entire IOTA system was operated by a single uh, centralized uh, entity that could shut the entire system down. 
And I mean, they, they got listed on Bitfinex in June 2017, and Bitfinex uh, quoted their advantages that they were endlessly scalable and uh, completely decentralized and zero fees and all these amazing advantages. And I didn't see anywhere that nobody that anybody was talking about the, uh, uh, how, just how nascent and untested and actually fundamentally uh, uh, incapable that technology was at actually delivering on those promises. So I actually, I started writing about the Eternity project which I had discovered uh, in my due diligence, I actually started to email the developers of the system and they had just uh, conducted, I think a $42 million uh, raise through an ICO. Uh, so I started to write about that project and then so, so IOTA sort of came from the side and distracted me so much that I ended up that the first piece that I wrote was about uh, the IOTA project. And uh, in the beginning, I had I had zero audience. I couldn't I couldn't get the message out. So I what I did was I actually I I knew of two people that would resonate with the message. So I contacted uh, Tone Vase and Krista Rose, and I wrote them a personal email. And I said, um, you know, I I'm aware uh, about who you are in this space, and I think that this article may be of relevance to the listeners uh, of your audience. And I asked them just kindly, could you? just reshare this article that I've written. Uh, that's the only time that I've done that. And both Krista Rose and Tone Base um, reshared the article. And from those two accounts, then my Twitter account got visibility and my writings got visibility. Um, so I, when I when I meet Tone Base at uh, conferences, conferences, he's like, hey man, I made you. <laughs> Because he was he was uh, he was the first like interaction that I got on on Twitter, uh, so I think I th I think that uh, that sort of put me on the map as uh, they they used to call me the altcoin slayer uh, because I think that a lot of Bitcoiners had this frustration that they had done their due diligence on the market and they had most of their assets invested in Bitcoin and then when their friends came into the space in 2017 their friends would buy these rubbish coins that they'd never heard about. So it was very convenient for them that there was these Twitter threads and articles that they could link to that uh, basically took those projects out the back and shot them in the head, which was what I did in my, in, in my threads. Um, so that positioned me as the altcoin slayer for a while. And if I, if I was intelligent and if I was strategic with uh, my... Uh, identity in the space, I, sh I probably should have stuck to just doing that. Uh, but however, what happened was that, you know, I have my own intellectual, like I am just like in this space, uh, some guy that is trying to figure it all out. Like what, where is the innovation going? Uh, what new projects are of interest? So I couldn't, I couldn't stick to this one trick that I knew would have made me uh, liked by everyone if I just kept doing that trick. So nowadays, I'm more like a controversial figure, figure in the Bitcoin space because uh, I think it, it, at the end of 2018, uh, 2019, when all the altcoins were dead, there were no more altcoins to slay, then I sort of turned my weapons back against the Bitcoin community. And I saw that there were many people in the Bitcoin community that had gotten uh, too, like, too self-confident and too sure that what they were doing were the, the smartest things and that they had the greatest minds and the best people. So I 
took it upon myself to be like a balancing act, like wherever I would see that there would be uh, overhyped, uh, that something was overhyped in the market, then I would try to just be the counter narrative to that. And that's not something that's not something that I do strategically. It's just that I'm like everyone else. I'm on crypto Twitter. I see things. I see that people talk about things and I get frustrated when things are overhyped and when things are underhyped, I like to, you know, take that side of the story instead. So yeah, that's kind of who I am in the space, I suppose. I love that. I, it kind of reminds me of what I became, like what I came into the space for just on the trading side, because I moved into the space because I saw so much shitty trading advice uh, and you did it on the fundamental side, which uh, I mean, I back then I enjoyed your IOTA and NEO articles a lot because I hated those projects too, mm. just based off of the fact that I've tried using them both and it didn't work. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I fondly remember that. Good times. Well, before those times, I was actually... Um, so before I became... Uh, interested in the uh, technological stuff of the cryptocurrencies. Like I, I have a computer science degree in, uh, and I, well, I actually specialized in blockchain technology in 2015. Uh, it, I mean, it was a computer science degree, but I wrote my master thesis on blockchain and I took the courses that would allow me to understand the cryptographic primitives that underbuild uh, various uh, blockchain protocols. Uh, but before that, like my initial interest in, in the cryptocurrency industry was also in trading. So I discovered Bitcoin in 2012 and I uh, thought that, okay, so this is basically an entirely new market where this is somewhere, you know, I don't I don't need to know all the lessons from the equities market. I don't need to know all the lessons from the bonds market or uh, just trading in general. This is a new, a clean slate where I can, and I was, uh, when I discovered Bitcoin, I was 21, I suppose. So I thought that, that this is a space where I can build an edge where I'm one of the first to learn and study everything so that I can become an expert in this field. But I actually started out trying to understand how to trade Bitcoin. Uh, and for a number of years, I was uh, actually doing technical analysis. So my journey into crypto wasn't that dissimilar from how I think that you know the, the, the average person's journey into crypto looks. I mean, most of the people, they get interested because they see cryptocurrencies and that there's money to be made and then they want to understand how to trade those assets so that they can build their wealth and i was no different i was doing exactly that and i fell headfirst into uh our bitcoin markets the subreddit bitcoin markets that's when i where i did my uh, initial uh studies of how to trade bitcoins and i was just like everyone else i started out with the basic technical indicators like the RSI, the MACD. And I was using those for, for a couple of years and I was trying to build out my own trading style. Uh, it wasn't until a couple of years down the road where I learned uh, sufficiently well how to program that I could test my own trading strategies, uh, like backtest my own strategies. And I could then apply a more scientific method to what I was, was actually doing and, and investigate was, did I, did my strategies actually have an edge in the market? And what I discovered after learning a bit of Python was that I had no edge in the market. And most of the, most of the trading decisions that I had made in the past, I mean, you have these technical parameters that you observe and then you apply a nudge of subjectivity, like, okay, the RSI is looking good. The MACD is looking good. Um, hmm. 
And there's also this uh, news coming out about Bitcoin uh, that uh, about, for instance, the, the, in 2015, uh, when the Lightning Network uh, paper was coming out, uh, you could sort of see how from the uh, that the uh, enthusiasm was building up in the space that oh we're finally going to be able to do transactions instantly at no cost and you could sort of see how that would be reflected in the price and i later understood that the only reason that i was profitable was that i was weighing in these uh, other things these these external things that happened outside of the price and i embedded those uh, that understanding into my into my trading and that's how I was actually, that's the only reason that I made any profit at all. Uh, so I, what I did was, at the, at the, at the, as, I, as I got more experienced in, in, in trading, I unlearned everything that I had learned uh, from, the, from our Bitcoin markets. And I now think that, you know, people that start out and they think that they can trade Bitcoin profitably by just, you know, using MACD, the 3D MACD or looking at the RSI. Like, if you think that you're going to be profitable doing that, then, you know, I've got a bridge to sell you. Uh, that's not how <laughs> that's that's not how it works. Uh, so so but but uh, so nowadays, like I'm on Twitter and I deride all these people that use uh, very naive technical analysis methods to trade Bitcoin. And but to to be completely transparent i mean i was exactly like like those guys when i started out so i i think that the reason like you know there's this saying that we are very quick to see our own flaws in others uh i mean it's very easy to identify when someone's doing something wrong when you have done that mistake yourself so one of the reasons that i take so much pro uh, so much itch issue with the stock to flow model and uh, other uh, heavily technically oriented uh, patterns of trading is that I mean I I'm I'm, I'm guilty myself of having committed uh, to that type of thinking in the past myself. So I completely understand why people would think this way, and it's also why I can, why I can understand how many people also go wrong by giving these uh, indicators undue relevance when when they're making their trading decisions. Oh, for sure. I I still remember that you were basically the only person that had the, the balls to stand up to the stock to flow guys back in the day. Like I, I still remember, like I was thinking it was so ridiculous what they were saying, but it was like non-argument worth having at the time on Twitter. And I still remember you charging straight into that. Um, what made you kind of go at it that hard? Was it just and a desire to kind of make make things right or? What yeah, I, mean, I, I so Plan B. He doesn't follow a lot of people on Twitter, but he follows me. Uh, I'm one of the few people that he. he I think that he, uh, you know, he, he knew he knew me and he knew my ideas, and he probably had some respect for the viewpoints that I laid out from the past. So I thought that okay, this guy listens to me, so maybe I can have an intelligent conversation with him around uh, the arguments that he was making, and. I think it's it just started with right off the bat when he uh, described he he has a, he, he has a description for why you cannot apply the stock to flow model uh, to altcoins but you can apply it to bitcoin and he calls that unforgeable costliness that there's proof of work involved in producing bitcoins and because of that unforgeability then bitcoin trades differently than other assets and that's sort of the first thing that I 
thought sounded strange. I mean, um, I mean, Bitcoin is heavily speculative. Speculative. The other assets are also heavily speculative. I mean, either you make the argument that it is the supply, supply dynamics that determine the price, or there's something else. Maybe it's the demand side that 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 actually governs the price, which, which is what I think. So I just started out by, uh, you know, I wanted to put this unforgeable costliness uh, idea to the test. So I started to ask him on Twitter, like, how does this? I mean, and I took other examples, and I uh, and I said, okay, well, is it really a binary thing? Like, shouldn't we see? A, 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 a little bit of correlation between something that, that for example, Litecoin would have a little bit more correlation with its stock to flow than, than something that is, uh, for XRP, that is just uh, thinly minted from thin air. Like, is, the, is it just a completely binary decision between Bitcoin and everything else? So I was trying to test him out on those, uh, like, on those points that he was making. And I thought that, you know, I, I thought that my arguments were stronger, but in the like how the Twitter, uh, just how the conversations went on Twitter was that I basically got no visibility at all uh, trying to uh, criticize the stock to flow model on its technical merits. And the only things that people were sharing were the very bullish price projections that the model was producing. And I did this for a year. I, 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 I went very deep into the logic of the stock to flow model. And I've done a lot of writing about all the assumptions that the stock to flow model makes and I've compared that to other models and uh, other assumptions and for like for instance you can study the stock to flow ratio of gold which should I mean there's no there's the gold is uh, as far as anything else maybe perhaps more than anything else also has this property of unforgeable costliness but you cannot see any correlation between this stock to flow variations in gold and the price of gold. I mean, you can identify that gold is highly valued because the stock to flow ratio is high, but you cannot uh, immediately uh, from the small variations. And now with Bitcoin, with these halvings, the variations are very small still uh, compared to what's happening on the demand side. So I thought that I would have some ability to sort of convince uh, plan B about the, the flaws of the model. But in the end, I was completely unsuccessful at doing that and it just built this immense frustration uh, on my end and uh, it also built some frustrations with some other guys like uh, uh, nick carter and hasu was uh, he's they are actually people that are cited in a lot of plan b's work uh, for instance his uh, new new model the uh, stock to flow the uh, stock to flow flow cross asset model heavily leans on the work by Nick and Hasu, where they describe different visions, different epochs of uh, Bitcoin in its history. Uh, but they are, I mean, Hasu and Nick, they are also uh, heavily uh, uh, cr heavy critics of the stock-to-flow model. And uh, what happened was that when we saw that the, so much of the Bitcoin ecosystem just piled into this, uh, like piled on and 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 just went with the stock to flow model. It sort of separated, I, I think it was a very clear separation in the uh, uh, Bitcoin Twitter ecosystem where who were the people that really had a scientific or well, that had a, a stronger preference for the truth and who were the ones that favored positive price uh, charts uh, over anything else. So it in the before the stock to flow model came, uh, there was a lot, we were, uh, all of us Bitcoiners, we were a, a big group of friends. And then the stock to flow model made it very obvious 
to me that who was willing to uh, go against something even though that it was extremely positive for Bitcoin, like uh, the stock to flow model says that the price is going to go up uh, and be 200, 300,000 of dollars, uh, but it doesn't rest on a, on a uh, sound basis. So, I mean, you have to kind of go against Bitcoin's own narratives to, to, um, to become a critic uh, of the stock to flow model. And that separates you from a lot of the other Bitcoiners. So, I think me, Hasu, and Nick were very good friends now because we picked the same side in that sort of debate. And I think, in retrospect, I'm kind of happy that the whole debate happened because it it taught me so much about some people that I previously thought had that they were on the right side or in the on the side of reason and the side of science that I discovered in the end were only there for the memes and the number go up uh, theories and not so much for the science. For those who, just taking us a step back very briefly, for those who might not be aware of, I mean, you've, almost certainly they've heard of it, right? It became so popular, as you mentioned. Um, and this is maybe my own cynical view, but I tend to agree with you that it's because of the price projections that it offers. That's probably about as far as maybe 98, 99% of people go when it comes to studying if I can even use that verb, uh, stock to flow, uh, for example. Oh no, no, no! Ahead. It's definitely, it's definitely not just about the the price. It's also about the colors. The <laughs> colors in the chart are extremely important, and that's that. That I think that I've proven that empirically with the rainbow chart that you can make, that you can make a model as popular as that stock to flow model if it has enough colors in it. I'll bring up the rainbow chart momentarily, which is which is its own fascinating story. But for those who are unaware of like what the stock model, stock to flow model, tries to show, um, what's what's your high level overview of those who've never really looked into uh, how it's calculated and instead just look at the high price projections that it offers? What's yeah. the kind of elevator pitch of the model or the yeah. assumptions it's making? Yeah, it's it's very simple. So Bitcoin started out by creating fifty Bitcoin in every block. And then after four years, uh, it was 25 Bitcoin in every block. And then after another four years, it was 12.5. And the, the stock to flow model basically posits that you can, uh, uh, you can see that the price has gone up throughout this time that the, that the number of Bitcoins that have been minted uh, in relation to how many were existing previously, uh, you can see that the price has gone up as the the flow, uh, uh, which is exactly how many Bitcoins are getting minted uh, in each block. Uh, you can see that the price has gone up while the, f the, the flow in relation to the stock uh, has gone down, which means that the stock to flow ratio has gone up. So while Bitcoin goes through, undergoes these halvings all the time, uh, you can also see that the price is going up. And then you, can, then you can sort of say, well, maybe there's a correlation here. We know that the, the, the stock to flow is going up and we know that the price is going up. And then you can uh, you can take that data and create a model out of it, and then you can say, okay, well, if if there is a causal relationship here with the the stock to flow going up, and if there is a and with the, with the price going up, if there is a relationship here, and if, and if we mathematically model that, then if we just you know we know that there are going to be halvings in the future, so if we just if we just forecast. The future based on how we know that the, the that the emission rate is going to be in bitcoin and, and the halvings then we can say exactly what the price is going to be so that's sort of what the model does and it uses a, a regression analysis to to create that model um so yeah that's that's 
my high level pitch, I'd say. So you mentioned one of the so that, for those on the way, I don't know how uh, up to date this is. Perhaps you can let us know. But there is also a Medium article um, titled uh, "A List of the Greatest Blows to the Stock to Flow Model." Right, where you provide some background and then basically es essentially a chronology as to how the model was developed and kind of amendments, criticisms, retractions, people changing their mind. Um, but as you mentioned, you, you don't you know that maybe hasn't had the type of impact uh, that you thought it might have. Uh, I think that uh, one thing has changed a lot with the stock to flow model, which is the whole story about the co-integration. And that's something that I'm very happy that we were able to take out of the, the pitch for the stock to flow model. So the co-integration is a statistical test that you can apply uh, where you have two, uh, two data series and you, you analyze those data series and you try to see, well, is one of these series impacting the other series? Uh, and uh, the guy, Nick Emblow, who did these tests, he was, uh, when he applied this test, he was sure that he had detected, uh, uh, well, he, he was sure that he couldn't disprove that there was no co-integration, which is basically, that's how you do statistical tests, you try to disprove uh, theses. And he couldn't disprove uh, that there wasn't uh, a, a, a deep relationship between the two variables. So that means that the so that meant that the the Bitcoin price was co-integrated with the uh, with the uh, with the stock to flow, uh, and that was something that uh, every everyone loved in the Bitcoin industry, even even uh, some some very influ influential people uh, and very educated and smart people in the Bitcoin space. They started to parrot this idea of the the co-integration property between Bitcoin and the stock to flow. So that made it well. Once once that test had had been done, then uh, and proven, then then uh, for a lot of people, the stock to flow model stopped being a theory. It was now science. It was a scientific fact. So I had to, you know, that made it. And I think that's one of the reasons that the conversation got so frustrating because people literally thought that this was a scientifically proven fact due to the co-integration tests. So it took, uh, it, it actually, it, it, how, we, uh, how, how we were able to eventually turn this debate around was that we literally got the guy who wrote the co-integration mathematical, uh, the co-integration uh, tests that the Nick Emblow had used, the guy who wrote the code for that test, we, his name is Sebastian Kripfgans. He works at the University of Exeter, and he uh, was pulled into the to the stock to flow debate. And he said, "Well, you have applied this test incorrectly." And he and he was then later brought into a conference that was called Value of Bitcoin, where he was tasked with 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 a task of. Uh, from his point of view, is there co-integration between stock to flow and the Bitcoin price or not? And his conclu conclusion was a resounding no, that there was no uh, co-integration between the stock to flow model and the Bitcoin price. So it, it completely annihilated the theories that the Bitcoin space had been relying on in order to make the stock to flow model a scientific truth. And that's why uh, uh, plan B sort of immediately as this started to happen, uh, plan B pivoted to a different model. And that's the stock to the, the cross asset model that uh, is inherently diff different from the stock to flow model, and it uses uh, um, it uses a different method to forecast the price, and it doesn't rely so heavily on uh, on uh, on um, co integration. It re it relies on. Uh, 
uh, interpolation between other asset classes. You take the real estate and the other asset classes and you sort of uh, interpolate what the price of Bitcoin will be from that data. And so he, he, was, try he was trying to escape this disproven cointegration idea and coming up with a new theory that he could onboard the belief, like everyone that loved the stock to flow model uh, would get annihilated in the uh, in in the overall discussion around the model if that model didn't have the co-integration backing it. So they needed another a, a new story for the model to live on, and that's what they've done now. And I was actually very surprised that he was able to, you know, basically said, okay, everyone that's followed me uh, for a year now that have uh, listened to me say a hundred times that. I will, uh, the only thing that's going to make me change my mind about my forecast for the Bitcoin price is if the co-integration uh, between Bitcoin and stock to flow breaks down. And then when that happened, he just switched to another model and everyone just happily followed along <laughs> uh, for that. Uh, so that's that, that was very, very interesting and, and funny to see. Uh, and now I think I think that we have been able to change the narrative a little bit so that people understand that the stock to flow model is a theory at least and we i don't have to uh, face these people that say well the stock to flow model is a scientific fact and if you don't if you don't think that you don't understand math or statistics which is what they previously said so i think that the the stock to flow cult has become a lot more bearable uh, since we were able to um, uh, make those statements around the uh, scientific degree of the model uh, detract why do you think uh, so many people latch onto these um i mean stock to flow there's a bunch more i mean even your rainbow chart why do you think everyone kind of loves to um parade them all around yeah i think um I th in order to answer that question you need to think how a new per like a person that has no background in finance that has no background in statistics that doesn't know much about cryptocurrency that just wants to make money i mean i i remember when i was new in the cryptocurrency space and i was on uh, the subreddit bitcoin markets and there was a guy there that used to produce these uh, weekly charts and that's actually where the rainbow model uh, came from uh, his name was azop and he, this, he, he wasn't, he, he hadn't, uh, it wasn't this logarithmic, the, the logarithmic regression, this curve, curved rainbow that I uh, published on my Twitter account. That was not the model that he, that Aesop was showing. He had a, a completely straight rainbow, but it, it had, that was the first time that, that I saw the rainbow colors in a, in a price projection, but they were completely straight lines. And I remember when I was completely new to the concept of Bitcoin trading and uh, this entire space, looking at you know the the price uh bouncing around the in this range and you can't you, you cannot sort of understand okay why is the price bouncing around this exact logarithmic range uh, or this logarithmic projection you don't understand that you don't understand that the the curve the line that you see on the chart has been produced retrospectively to fit the, the the historic price so this i this this uh, curve fit that the the stock to flow model uses and the, that the rainbow chart uses and that a lot of other forecasts uses i mean you you make this uh, plan b he made this in 2019 or now with the uh, cross asset model in 2020 i think those models are retroactively made to fit the price so when you look at them today you sort of see this 
model and then you see oh well throughout history the the price has followed that like from some ma for some magical reason the price has tracked that trajectory and you can see that with a rainbow chart as well that it just magically follows along this beautiful trajectory and you think oh well, that's you know that's statistically unlikely and uh, you, you just intuitively think that if there weren't an inherent relationship then how could you produce this this perfect line that the price would track. So I think that a lot of the, a lot of it comes from that people don't understand what regressions do, that they are retroactive tools to create these curve fits. So that I think that's one part of it. And the other part of it is probably just intellectual laziness that you don't want to really understand how markets work. You just want a, a quick story that like okay i don't know anything about this space but this stuff has math associated with this with it these guys seem smart i'm just gonna pick uh this model and i'm gonna hope that it's right i mean you gotta understand that most people aren't like us they aren't working full time with crypto they just it's just something that comes across their feed and they spend maybe you know an hour here and there and they they don't have time to become like deep uh, wise sages that understands the true nature of the markets and they just latch onto something that has a lot of moment like backing from other smart people and they just think okay well you know if i'm right about this then i'll make uh, 10x my money and that becomes a beautiful story to them and they want to believe that story and they 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 start to follow these people that tell these uh, very elegant and beautiful stories around how they're going to get rich so it's a very compelling narrative to believe uh, so i can completely i mean if I was able to look at Aesop's models that were completely like compared to Plan B's, his writing, I mean, Aesop's was basically it was it was um, dog shit compared to 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 uh, what Plan B Plan B produces in terms of uh, how eloquently uh, the arguments are articulated and how much data is behind uh, the models. So I think if I was, when I was new, when I looked at the first, uh, the, the primitive forms of the rainbow chart, and I thought, hmm, maybe maybe it's going to keep going in that trajectory. If I can make that, and I'm, I consider myself to be a reasonably intelligent person, if I can make that uh, leap of thinking, then I sh you know, I'm not surprised at all that uh, the other people in the space are so easily swayed by the rainbow model and the stock to fill model yeah i think it's just that perfect combination of these people appear to be smart or at least smarter than you are right if, if you're someone who's not an expert or remotely interested uh they are key figureheads within your industry so that kind of adds an air of authority or gravitas and then perhaps most importantly um the conclusion at, you know to which the model and its assumptions arrives at uh is one that's favorable to you and your personal outcome and your most importantly your pre-existing investments Right. I don't know many cases of people investing into Bitcoin because of stock to flow, but certainly the, the validation effect that it has on those who are already invested. It's, a, it's about sort of converting the converted at that point. And obviously the memes, colors, that sort of uh, virality of it. I just think it's the perfect storm. And despite, you know, seemingly um, what would otherwise be fatal blows to the um, methodology, it, it, I think just the fact that it's so inaccessible to most, but the conclusion is so pleasant. Uh, it'll live on, I'm sure, in many other forms and models as well. Exactly. And hey, I mean, 
saying that the price of Bitcoin is going to increase in the future is not that bad of a bet. I mean, the 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 rainbow chart or the stock to flow model will probably be roughly correct because they just say the price is going to increase in the future. And even if you make a fundamental based analysis, which is what I do and how I think about the, the, the Bitcoin price, then you reach a sort of similar conclusion. So uh, they are not bad models if you just uh, take them as price projections. Of course, the, the, the methodology and the science behind them are completely rubbish. But if you ask me how I genuinely think that the, that the price of Bitcoin is going to develop in 2021, you know, the rainbow chart is a pretty good, it's a pretty good chart for that. It's uh, the price, you know, I, I would personally think that if we're in the blue zone of the rainbow, then I would I would think that that's a fire sale, and you should definitely buy a lot of Bitcoin in the blue zone of the rainbow chart. And if we're in the red zone of the rainbow chart, then I would I would not think that Bitcoin is particularly cheap. And you could, if you needed your money for some reason, you wanted to take it out. The red zone might be uh, you know a decent spot as any to take your money out. So that's the that's, that's the ironic thing with these uh, models is that they do kind of also. They're they're not bad projections, and they might hold up. I think maybe both the rainbow chart and the stock to flow model could hold up for another couple of years. There you go. The headlines now. Eric Wall doubles down on <laughs> rainbow chart projections. Thing is, it's funny. It's reminiscent of almost kind of bad trading, especially when you're a beginner, whereby the outcome might be great, but your process is terrible. But because the outcome is great, you kind of you can always afford to look past the process until, of course, it come you know catches up to you and bites you in the butt. You mentioned um, or you alluded to kind of the future and how you sort of view Bitcoin. So I was privy to an in interesting discussion you had with John Paul Koning, uh, one among many, I'm sure you recall. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's this kind of two-part write-up. Um, the first, I'll link the tweet in the description or the show notes. Uh, but it's this kind of, where are we going anyway? And then, so what is Bitcoin's end target? And it, it's a very interesting kind of write-up. And you kind of start, if you know, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, with my summary, but it starts with uh, uh, an outline of how a lot of other people think about Bitcoin's future price uh, by analogizing to gold in one form or another and making, uh, you know, deductions based on gold's market cap. But then you go further with the argument and essentially make the case that because Bitcoin's moneyness is superior to that of gold and its digital native properties, etc., that perhaps using gold as the benchmark is conservative, which may sound crazy at current prices, but that's sort of the, uh, if I've understood correctly, the chronology of arguments made within that blog post. Do you want to give, first of all, is that correct? Second of all, uh, could you give us a rough outline uh, on how, like high level overview of how you do view Bitcoin price, its developments and whether gold or money generally is useful for, uh, as a benchmark? Yeah, no, I think you roughly uh, hit the nail on its head with your description there. And uh, I mean, when I was when I started to do fundamental analysis on Bitcoin, you're you're kind of looking in. So how you apply the fundamental analysis is you're kind of looking for other things in the realm of assets that you could compare Bitcoin to, and then gold is of course the the most readily available one that resembles Bitcoin the most because it also gets the majority of its value from it's uh, just a property that it's very difficult to inflate the supply uh, of gold. So the the stock to flow ratio of gold and Bitcoin <laughs> are, 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 are quite similar. So that puts Bitcoin in that type of category of assets. 
So I think that gold is a great starting point for Bitcoin. If, if we're thinking about investors globally and, uh, and we think about how, what role does gold play uh, in, the, in these investors' portfolios, then, I mean, gold is a, a, a hedge type of asset when there's a lot of political global uncertainty or when, when you're unsure about inflation, what's going to happen in the financial markets, then gold is always a safe bet because that's just an asset that does nothing, that has very little uh, external events that can influence or or disrupt its uh, its price. So uh, when we have when you have an asset that's uh, completely disconnected from almost everything else, then that asset's value will grow uh, at the rate of GDP uh, of society. And to break that down a little bit, what I basically mean is that if society uh, if society can produce uh, with the current technology, if we can produce 10 uh, gallons of milk uh, at a given year, then there will be an exchange rate between a gallon of milk and gold. And, the, and, 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 and then if society next year can produce 10,000 gallons of milk because the technology got better, then the price of milk is going to go down a lot in relation to gold, because gold is not changing. Uh, so that means that as a society becomes more uh, advanced and the technology improves, it actually makes more, it actually makes gold uh, more valuable because you can now buy more things with it because things are now cheaper to produce. Uh, so so uh, gold is a good investment in that sense that you can just put your money in gold and, and, and because it's static, then it, it will, it will uh, also grow in value. Uh, it, it, it won't just conserve your money, it will actually grow in value because society gets better at producing things. Uh, but gold is still, it's such an, I don't think that people fully appreciate how niche gold is. I mean, anybody uh, that's listening to this, you can ask your parents, like, what do you, how do you, how do you invest your assets and and how do their friends invest their assets? And most people don't own gold. Only about seventeen percent uh, of Americans uh, have any exposure to gold at all, uh, except for maybe you know you have a uh, small gold uh, necklace or something like that. But most people do not treat gold as an investment class. Most people uh, invest in the stock market or they buy real estate. That's what most people do. So gold is uh, not mainstream. Gold is a niche asset. And I think the reason that gold is such a niche asset is that it failed. It failed as a, uh, as a monetary tool because uh, you're just fiat money was so much better at, at, at uh, being the medium of exchange in society. So gold fell out of society uh, both uh, because, well, also because the, the U.S. government basically uh, cut the ties between the money and the gold, of course, which uh, uh, which happened in 1971 with the end of the uh, Bretton Woods system. So, of, of of course, there's there's governmental reasons to why gold has been pushed out of the purview of of, of uh, mainstream uh, economics so much. But gold plays a very niche role in the economy today, and there is no reason. I mean, the reason why we, gold is not successful as money today is because that's not something that you could reliably reliably run international commerce on you couldn't make gold based transactions i mean there there has been attempts to internetify gold so that you could trade with small pieces of gold over the internet e gold did that in when the internet was new 
but they were I, I just wrote a tweet about this how that project it Bitcoin does almost uh, 20,000 times the volumes that eGold did even when eGold was at its peak so Bitcoin is already 20,000 times more successful than eGold ever was at uh, transferring value across the internet. So I think that we can definitely see like Bitcoin is going to become a successful uh, medium of exchange in an internet-based world. And gold is going to remain this niche store of value asset that can only be used for that, while Bitcoin is going to be used to settle debts between friends, among uh, companies, among institutions, among countries. Uh, so I think that just thinking about Bitcoin uh, about about Bitcoin is something that could compete with gold. You're really, really uh, constraining your view of what the future for Bitcoin might be. Like, let's say it become let's say that Bitcoin actually becomes as large as gold. Do you think that you know you that you wouldn't uh, see uh, countries, companies, institutions that would actually use that asset to settle debts? Because I mean, it's it's an internet-based asset, right? It's so it, the, the whole system is designed so that in order to make it so easy for you as possible to send value using it, that's what the whole asset is designed to do. And so it's it's not going to stay just as a store of value asset because then there are going to be tons of economies, uh, tons of people in different countries with very poor currencies that are just going to prefer to transact uh, uh, wealth in that. I mean, if they're if they're using that to store their wealth, why wouldn't they? If they need to transfer a piece of wealth to somebody else, why would they have to go? out of Bitcoin and into something else to transfer their wealth when they can just stay in Bitcoin and transfer it that way. And if that's how Bitcoin, uh, if that's how Bitcoin develops, that people actually start to use it as a wealth transfer mechanism, then we have a ca captured a much larger market than, than what gold is used for uh, today. So then we, then, then in that blog post, I start to reason about, okay, so but if Bitcoin becomes uh, a digital gold, it will probably start heading towards becoming a universal type of money. And what would the market cap of a universal uh, hard money be? And uh, I, I, I can lay out the arguments for why I, I put that around $200 trillion is where I put the, put the evaluation for that. And that comes from, you look at the monetary premiums in other asset classes, uh, stocks, real estate bonds uh, those asset classes are in the range of hundreds of trillions of dollars and that's the type of uh, market that bitcoin would realistically compete for it wouldn't be this 10 trillion dollars that gold has if if bitcoin actually becomes successful as a, as a transfer mechanism of wealth what do you think stands in the way of that uh, two things. Uh, the first one is regulation, of course. Uh, this is something that, I mean, if this happens, uh, this is going to erode, it's going to erode the power of the nation state. It's going to erode the, the ability for nation states to print their own money and wage endless wars against each other and uh, manipulate the uh, import and export uh, rates uh, versus each other and basically use their currencies as uh, war tools uh, against each other and also as mechanisms to siphon wealth from their own population, which is what gives the state its power. So Bitcoin is the most powerful device ever uh, contrived to take 
power away from the state. So the states are, I mean, either they're going to just fall down and allow themselves to get overthrown by this decentralized protocol, or they're, go they're going to fight it with, with nail and tooth. And I think that we're probably going to see a bit of both. There are going to be some governments that are going to fight Bitcoin. There are going to be other governments that are going to see an opportunity if that happens and say, okay, well, if these governments are trying to lock their populations out of the Bitcoin system, then we can actually perhaps get a monetary advantage versus those countries by being very positive uh, to Bitcoin. So I think that we'll see, uh, uh, it's going, it's, it, this is going to go on for a number of decades where countries are going to have to... Uh, choose their stance versus Bitcoin. Some will be against, some will be for, and it won't be until uh, Bitcoin has sort of won that uh, uh, inter international political uh, uh, struggle that, that we'll see how large uh, the Bit Bitcoin will, how large of a role Bitcoin will play in the economy. And I think that $200 trillion, that's uh, sort of, that's the successful outcome. Uh, there's definitely a possibility that Bitcoin only becomes, you know, half successful at that goal. So it could be, you know, within the range of 20 to 60 trillion dollars and sort of be semi-successful in, 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 in doing that. Yeah, I think the gold argument is very interesting because it's inoffensive, right? If, if Bitcoin beats gold at gold's game and becomes a store of value, it doesn't castrate the state uh, in such an extreme capacity or to the extent that it would if it became this kind of global, almost kind of Keynes's Bancor type of money, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's why uh, a lot of the analogies are made to gold, because then you don't have to wrestle with the difficult implications of it traveling um, beyond that. One of the On that topic, I want to kind of get a perspective of time from you. One of the arguments that we've seen, I mean, Suzu of Three Arrows Capital, and there's other... Uh, you know, other thinkers in, in a similar realm, the argument essentially is that this is going to take place, The at the very least, the stage one, if you will, Bitcoin to gold uh, move, it's going to take place in the form of one cycle or a super cycle, as it's called, uh, which will also be the mm -hmm. final uh, cycle for Bitcoin as it kind of uh, reaches critical mass almost as far as um, store of value goes. Do you subscribe to that? Do you believe this is, you know, the, the notion of a super cycle? Does that eliminate shorter term market cycles or just any type of chronology of time uh, would be super cool to hear from you? Yeah, I think that uh, Bitcoin uh, has a reasonably strong chance of uh, uh, coming into parity with gold's market cap within the next five years. And you know, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily going to happen in one single move up. I think that we could definitely have a, a bubble that uh, reaches a climax point and pops this year at, let's say, uh, 150000 or 180000 or $200,000 or just $100,000, somewhere around that, and sort of top out. And then we go into a new uh, expansion. Uh, a couple of years down the road, and then we, uh, and then Bitcoin goes to four or five hundred thousand dollars, and actually dethrones gold. Uh, so I think that that's definitely possible that we'll see two of these pops. But I, I, I don't think that it's. Uh, I, I do think that we have a lot of like the the macroeconomic situation is at such an extreme point now that we may just skip that bubble uh, pop uh, that we usually see in Bitcoin and just continue uh, with Bitcoin just aggressively 
continuing its 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 uh, takeover. So I think that the, um, uh, those people that subscribe to the uh, one super cycle theory, I, they they could definitely be onto something. But it's not necessarily that that's exactly how it's going going to play out. It might take two legs, two two cycles to get us there as well. What do you think um, are the, the altcoins going to do if that were to happen? Are there any altcoins that you like? Is there anything in the space that interests you? Yeah, so you asked me previously, like, what are the things that I think stands in the way of Bitcoin is succeeding at this? At this? And I said two things, and we only talked about the first thing, which, which, mm -hmm. which was regulation. And the second thing is, of course, that... Uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, gets outcompeted. I mean, I don't eliminate that possibility. I think that, I think that the the the, the cards are currently in Bitcoin's favor. Uh, Bitcoin is uh, is is has a very uh, a very um, it's made a lot of progress that the altcoins will have to play a long, long catch up game before they can get where Bitcoin is today in terms of how mainstream. Uh, how mainstream uh, economists, macroeconomic uh, analysts and uh, uh, companies, corporations and just people all over the world, they now view Bitcoin as, 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 um, as something real. I think that it's very far off for any altcoin to, to be near uh, to be near as successful at the mimetic game that Bitcoin has played uh, in, the, in, in the previous decade. So I think that Bitcoin has a Tremendous lead, and I think that it's uh, if I'm if if I'm betting my money on 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 something, then then I'd, I'd probably bet it on Bitcoin. But that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, um, uh, EV bets, like risk reward bets, that you can make outside of Bitcoin that are also favorable. Uh, it's just that they are further out on the risk curve, and they they give you a possible possible potentially a, a higher return for a for a higher risk. And in some cases, those risks are. Uh, low enough that the, that the rewards are worth them. So I think that Ethereum is probably one such project that I do think that the risk reward of that project is, I mean, it's definitely further out on the risk curve. And it also plays a sort of co complementary role to Bitcoin. It's not, they're not mutually exclusive, these projects. I mean, the DeFi space of Ethereum and then the store value narrative of Bitcoin are sort of complementary stories. Uh, so I think that both Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, can have value, and that immediately makes it so that all these. Uh, I think that the competition that Bitcoin sees from other coins, there's really not that. The only project that really threatens Bitcoin today is well, that would uh, if 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 the Ethereum platform and DeFi becomes super successful and it becomes a huge story. And then the ESG narratives around Bitcoin's energy footprint versus, uh, versus Ethereum's proof of stake uh, based energy footprint. If we if we uh, leap a few years in, into the future and imagine that proof of stake is now implemented in, 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 in Ethereum, then I think that Ethereum it has a chance to to uh, be viewed as something that that could like, like let's say something bad happens to Bitcoin, then Ethereum is very uh, uh, it stands ready to take the role of where Bitcoin has been, but I do think that just just the idea of Bitcoin failing is not something that's good for the cryptocurrency space overall. Because I think we've 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 been able to create this story that we have created a digital form of gold, but gold was gold for thousands of years. It didn't 
it didn't lose its status because a new precious metal came along and was better at being gold than gold was. Gold was always the, the, the better one of the precious metals to store value in, and that was proven over thousands of years. And I think if Bitcoin just makes it 10 years and then it fails, then that's going to diminish the the narrative around cryptocurrencies. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's a future that we should hope for, but uh, I, do, I don't think it completely eviscerates or eliminates the... I mean, uh, some people may, it might take five years and then the cryptocurrency market recovers again. And then there'll be a dominant player, a proof of stake based uh, dominant asset. And people will say, oh, well, Bitcoin was the first prototype. And now we got this uh, other asset that uh, is also, uh, the, the, the supply is also constrained, not as constrained in the same way as Bitcoin was, but it's, it is still more constrained than uh, fiat currency is. So it's still better to have uh, this thing power the economy than fiat currency. So um, I do think that the that the altcoins both play a complementary role. I, basically, the only altcoins that I am interested in right now are smart contract platforms. So it's Ethereum and the Ethereum killers. That's the coins that I'm tracking in the altcoin space. Then, of course, uh, DeFi coins. Also, uh, I also pay some interest to those coins because they are the breadwinners of the, of the previous year and there's also all sorts of ways that you can uh, generate alpha by by uh, trading DeFi coins however i think that um i think that perhaps the risk reward of DeFi coins aren't as good as in bitcoin and ethereum still even at these valuations because um i mean just take uni as an example i mean that's definitely a security uh, yet it's listed on all the exchanges when its regulatory status is it's probably a security so and 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 bitcoin and ethereum doesn't have that uh, i mean they have already gone through the sec's hands a number of times and they decided that these assets are not securities uh, but most defi coins are probably securities and their valuations i mean they're they're not they're not that low uh, if you consider the fact that how many of these different DeFi coins there are. There are so many different lending protocols. There are so many different uh, DEX systems. There are so many different that you, and you don't know which one of these will actually become successful. So if you take if you take that into account, then I think that the DeFi token valuations aren't like super attractive. Whereas in Bitcoin's case, I can still say that Bitcoin is on the path of becoming a uh, multi-trillion dollar asset and and right now it's just valued one trillion so i can say with with a with a with good reason that bitcoin is you know undervalued relative to what it could become in the future i'm not sure that i could make the same argument for DeFi coins but what you what you do have in the DeFi coins uh, market is extreme speculation going on right now so there's of course uh, money that you can make there but i wouldn't make uh, my DeFi exposure more than let's say 10 percent of my portfolio uh, because i mean uh, i'm still uh, pretty conservative with my strategy in the market and if I know that there are some bets where I can have high conviction and a relatively uh, good return, then I'll pick that for the majority of my assets and I'll use maybe 10% for, for these short-term uh, opportunistic trading strategies that you, you can make in the DeFi space. Uh, but outside DeFi coins, I, do, I, I basically only think about smart contract platforms. I used to think about privacy coins, uh, but I don't anymore because uh, smart contract platforms can emulate 
the the properties of a of a of a of a of a privacy coin pretty well. I mean, the zero knowledge proofs. A smart contract platform can validate the same type of zero knowledge proof logic that uh, powers Zcash cryptocurrency, and that can make uh, any any smart contract coin can reach a higher privacy degree than than Monero or any of these other privacy coins. So, and uh, the network effect of uh, an ecosystem that captures the DeFi. Uh, uh, the, all the DeFi activity is going to create much stronger network effects than you know just a single illiquid uh, privacy coin can ever do. So yeah, the the things the things that I care about are basically Bitcoin, smart contract platforms, and a little bit of DeFi dabbling basically. And in 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 Bitcoin, there's really not not that much to do. You just you know buy and hold Bitcoin. But the smart contract space, that's where I th think is probably where I spend most of my time and digging and thinking because uh, Ethereum's position in the smart contract competition is much less clear than Bitcoin's uh, role in the store value uh, category is. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ways that you can use your insights about technology in the smart contract competition uh, where you can actually generate alpha for yourself by by knowing okay so this smart contract platform actually has legs and this one does not so that's the way that that's what drains most of my uh, attention these days is understanding the different scalability challenges and the different philosophical trade-offs that different uh, smart contract platform does so uh, assets that i have been trading in just these last couple of last couple of months has been well of course the ethereum and the btc pair the ETH btc pair but also uh avalanche uh is interesting uh, to trade uh, solana is interesting to trade near is interesting to trade polkadot is in interesting to trade um uh, and binance coin is one of the probably one of the best trades that i've done recently is when uh, in, in beginning of february i, I noticed that some of the DeFi activity was genuinely leaking out of the uh, Ethereum ecosystem for the first time, and it seemed like Binance, Binance, the Binance Smart Chain was the first platform where, where that activity was uh, seeing some organic uptake. Uh, so that's uh, created a, a very good trading opportunity. So it's those kinds of trades where I see, well, well, where I can personally insert my own type of knowledge and 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 uh, make profitable trades does that suggest that ethereum's kind of network effects or first movers advantage however you want to classify um its current status it's a lot more fragile right because even just using a basic example if you were to say bitcoin killer that would be interpreted with immediate skepticism if not laughter right at least in it's in the current landscape whereas if you say ethereum killer suddenly you've got a bunch of very reasonable investment theses as you mentioned in recent times it's been playing out with other chains capturing some of that economic activity when a large group or portion of participants get priced out due to fees um is that a fair kind of assertion to make that maybe ethereum's yeah, advantages um... are more fleeting yeah, and I'll I'll just pretext by saying that I am among the. I mean, Ethereum is by far my largest holding among the uh, smart contract platforms, and I do think that Ethereum has the strongest likelihood to be successful in the smart contract uh, platform world. But there are definitely trading opportunities there because uh, I mean, pretty it's pretty similar the situation to. Uh, what what happened to Bitcoin in two thousand seventeen when the fees in Bitcoin for the first time made. It looked like uh, Bitcoin wasn't going to work out, 
for the re for the retail people that came into the, into the cryptocurrency space, they just saw that you know I can't afford to make a transaction on Bitcoin, and then everybody told them, oh well, that's because Bitcoin is antiquated technology, and there's these other coins that you can use. I think that Ethereum is in that same situation now, where uh, people will be bullish on DeFi, and then they'll notice that they don't have enough money to make uh, to be a regular user of, of of Ethereum, and that creates opportunity in all these other smart contract uh, platforms. Uh, I don't. I, I do think that the roll up uh, roll ups that are being developed on Ethereum today is the most uh, interesting, or sort of the most sound way to scale a smart contract platform. So I think that Ethereum is doing the right things. I'm not so. I'm not that big of a fan of of the sharding, um, the sharding roadmap that's on the ETH2 uh, roadmap. But uh, I think that rollups, and it might, you know, it might it might be the case that Ethereum just does rollups and then sharding just never happens. I think that there's a lot of pressure on the Ethereum team to deliver sharding just because they've talked about it for so long. But I don't think that technically that sharding needs to happen. I think that what we should do first is just focus on Rollups, and I think that maybe Vitalik has a blog post about this, where it's called a rollup-centric roadmap for Ethereum. So I think that he fully understands that, and he's trying, and he probably put that article out to just see if if people can prefer that path instead of sharding. I know I know that sharding is still being worked on. I I do hope that we'll we'll try just to scale Ethereum using rollups uh, for for a while before we. Uh, take the nuclear option and go with the sharding roadmap. Um, but uh, I mean, rollups are uh, migrating the activity into rollups. It's almost it's it's equally hard and perhaps even harder than just migrating them to another chain. So that's what's creating this trading opportunity now. That while Ethereum is trying to scale the system in this very complex way, there are people offering quick fixes, and there could be you know. Uh, there's, I, I would prefer if everyone just focused around making rollups as good as possible and just stayed centered around the Ethereum ecosystem. I think that, that would be the best path for everybody. But uh, at the same time, I got to consider how can this actually play out in the market? And I don't eliminate the possibility at all that you know things don't go the way that I want them to. And there is some platform that just relies very heavily on marketing and thus uh, trade-offs in terms of scalability and decentralization on the back end and just comes out and everybody thinks that that platform has solved all the problems that Ethereum was struggling to solve. And then that captures a lot of the DeFi activity. And then that DeFi activity actually stays there on that platform. That's not like my positive outcome, but that can happen. And I think that other people also uh, see that as a possibility. And that's why uh, these other Ethereum killer platform has been the best performing coins in the last three months. Yeah, I, I think in general with the with the scaling argument, um, it's always like you get you get problems scaling. Bitcoin did in seventeen, something else comes up, and then it, something pulls back. Like I mean, ETH's not been performing as well, and it gets worked on, and a couple months to years later it just comes back up again and it's better now but just a little bit and then that just happens over and over again as everything just kind of moves forward right um do you think at any kind of stage we're gonna get past the scaling issue at like completely or is it always gonna be a roadblock and it's always gonna be that 
like moment where everything just takes a step back and maybe we get pulled back or something. Yeah, as, uh, I think uh, if for um, smart contract platforms and for Bitcoin, the situations are uh, pretty different because one of the things that are driving the very high fees in the Ethereum ecosystem is that there are these on-chain arbitrage uh, opportunities. You don't really have that in Bitcoin, that there's a transaction that you can make in the Bitcoin blockchain that will make you rich. But there are the, the, the Ethereum chain is swarmed with such opportunities at any given moment. There are tons of arbitrage opportunities inside the protocol itself all the time. And those types of transactions will crowd out all the like users that just wants to transact. They don't want to pay more than a few bucks. But a person who wants to act an arbitrage opportunity, he can pay, you know, whatever the arbitrage is worth and then then minus the transaction cost if that's still uh, on uh, in in uh, if that's still revenue for him then he will still pay that price so i think that what you need in a smart contract platform is you inherently need uh, different silos of uh, fee environments so you'll you'll need one environment where if if you just want to make payments then that will have to be uh, in its own mempool and fees will have to be isolated to that uh, specific use case. Whereas, so, so I don't think that they, if you have arbitra arbitragers that make uh, DeFi transactions and, and they make arbitrage trades on decentralized exchanges, you cannot have the, those users compete for the same block space as the ones uh, that are just doing payments. That's why I think rollups are such an elegant solution because that allows uh, you to have, a, for instance, one rollup that just does, let's say, anonymous payments. And then you have another rollup that does uh, decentralized exchange uh, trading and or margin trading and, and leverage trading. Uh, and I do think you'll need to separate that if you want to have uh, a low fee environment that's scalable in the long term. And right now you have these Ethereum competitors where they basically have no fees. And the only thing that that means is that there's not that many traders doing decentralized finance arbitrage trades in those ecosystems yet. But if even even if like even if you have a chain and it's provides 10 times as much block space, as much throughput as Ethereum, that only means that you know you now have space for uh, 10 times as much decentralized exchange activity. And you know, I used to work previously at a company. We built uh, matching engines for the, um, we, we, we built, for instance, the London Metal Exchange, the Australian Securities Exchange. We built the technology for those platforms. And it's not like if we made uh, the engine go uh, two times faster, that that would uh, mean that we had tons of room for, for transactions. Like we had a lot of space over because traders, uh, if you give them more, it's it's like bandwidth. It's like uh, the internet. Like if you if you give people more bandwidth, it just means that they're going to be streaming YouTube videos when they're on the toilet, and it's the same thing with trading and and arbitrage opportunities. If you give people more access to uh, deploying smart contracts and and creating trading uh, products and derivatives, it's just you know it's it's always the the usage is always going to use up all the available space. So you cannot you cannot it doesn't matter how much throughput you give a system you are going to need to create these siloed fee environments. 
uh, in order to create create different fee pressures in different silos. That's the only way that you're going to be able to do it. And I think that that's exactly what Ethereum is doing, both with rollups, both with sharding, and that's the only way uh, forward out of this maze. But what can happen is that you know people don't realize what I'm realizing right now, and they think that these other platforms has solved the problem that Ethereum hasn't been able to solve just because you know you start over you start over afresh on a new chain uh, it doesn't have as much state bloat it has no history uh, and most of those smart contract smart contract platforms uh, make trade-offs in terms of the decentralization versus uh, versus the throughput so they do go faster uh, so they will seem to a lot of people they they might these systems might seem as they have an advantage over ethereum and that might be enough for um Ethereum to get dethroned in the short term. And then once you have a network effect in another system, then if Ethereum wants to get back in the game, now it has to compete with this other platform's network effect that maybe it got illegitimately just by people being stupid. But network effects can be created by people just being stupid. It doesn't matter what's right or wrong. It's just how the market and the ecosystems evolve. This is by no means an elegant question. Uh, but in in somewhat relative terms, like you've addressed uh, rollups and sharding as you know remedies potentially for scaling issues. Um, how about monetary policy changes that we're seeing uh, in ETH? Like the you know the most recent one that's been on the headlines is the EIP fifteen fifty nine, and then generally the transition from proof of work to proof of stake. Are are these do these help scaling? And if so, is it possible to almost kind of compare them in terms of their relative impact or magnitude to the technological advancements that you mentioned uh, earlier? Yeah, no, so they don't address scaling, but they do address other things. So uh, EIP 1559, for instance, harmonizes fee fluctuations, so that creates a better user experience. And uh, uh, the monetary policy which Ethereum has, which is uh, the, the minimum viable issuance, that means that the protocol will always uh, uh, issue enough block rewards to make it profitable to to be a validator in the system. That has an advantage in the in the sense that it's it's easier to say that this system will provide security for its transactions in the future. So I think that uh, monetary policy can be used to create a better user experience. It can be used to create uh, more reliable security. Uh, it can even you can even uh, EIP fifteen fifty nine that also has a part of the, the the portion of the fees that get burned can even create the uh, instead of Bitcoin which just has a fixed cap Ethereum can has can have a, a deflating supply so it can actually have a a, a negative uh, emission so that the so the total supply actually shrinks so those three things you know better user experience uh, more reliable security and the deflating supply those are three very very strong uh, um, narratives i think that ethereum users will probably uh, rely heavily on so what they don't have is that they don't have this um, super clear meme that bitcoin has that there will only be 21 million coins and that's that will be it and that's something that resonates a lot of, with people but they'll, they'll have these three other things and they will intelligently employ those arguments to undermine the uh, the premise that bitcoin delivers by saying okay well bitcoin gives you this but we give you this instead and i think for someone that is trying to compete with bitcoin uh ethereum is already competing with bitcoin intelligently will 
perhaps not intelligently, but at least strategically in, in being a green cryptocurrency that doesn't have an energy footprint, then it can also compete with Bitcoin by having a completely different fundamental philosophy around um, how it gains, how it gets security, how it provides a good user experience. And, and it can even it can even start to compete with Bitcoin in terms of the ultimate scarcity by saying we have a deflating supply. So I think that uh, those uh, the, the EIP 1559, the proof of stake, those things uh, are going to uh, just cement Ethereum's role as a very different project with different uh, different assurances and different advantages to Bitcoin in a very clear way. And uh, uh, that might be a reason that you know Ethereum is going to persist for a long time alongside Bitcoin. And if something were to happen to Bitcoin that made Bitcoin fail, Ethereum wouldn't necessarily need to fail for the same reasons. Yeah, those implications are, are certainly much, much more significant than I had first envisioned. I mean... I've learned a lot, Don. I'm sure. I'm sure you have as well. And Eric, of course, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I want to give you the opportunity to um, either leave us with any final thoughts, or where can people read your work? Anything you want to uh, leave our audience with, generally? Uh, I always get this question, but I never really have anything uh, particular to say. I mean, just follow follow me on Twitter. Uh, ERC uh, WL is how my what my twitter name is and if you have anything uh of relevance to the conversation that we've just had uh feel free to plug me there uh i do find it uh, more troubling these days to get through everything that's in my inbox but uh, um i do do some type of filtering there if somebody has something really interesting to say i i do make time for for, for that uh, person but it is i mean i'm sure you guys to suffer this the same experience that you want to answer everybody but you can't it just you would sit and answer people in your inbox for 24 hours a day Absolutely. it just doesn't work it's very sad because I, I i do want to get back to everybody that reaches out to me but it's just it's just impossible sometimes hopefully we don't burden you too much don any <laughs> final notes no thank you for your time really appreciate it yeah, yeah been, thanks guys it's been a pleasure eric and a final thank that's all that's all from us at technical roundup a thank you once again to blockfolio for sponsoring the show blockfolio.com or blockfolio.trade for more information there eric thank you one final time and we will see you all for the next episode take care cheers